This week I get to share with you an interview that I did with the wonderful and mischievous Lucky Little a couple of months back. But before I introduce Lucky, I want to respond to the latest episode of the podcast, Slee Ricketts, which I recommended on here before. If you haven't listened to Slee Ricketts yet, I really, really recommend it. It is just a great time. It is very funny. It's very thought-provoking, occasionally scathing, and just a great listen. There aren't that many poetry podcasts out there that are willing to have that much fun. So I really recommend it. I think you'll like it. And while I'll probably never get to meet the host, Matthew Buckley-Smith, in person, I still feel like I'm in some sort of community with his listeners through his podcast on which he has occasionally mentioned this podcast which is just really lovely so in the latest episode in episode 24 Matthew picked up on my use of the word bomb when I was introducing Maxine last week I was talking about how we had shared the experience of bombing at poetry readings Matthew picked up on that word in particular, and I'd encourage you to listen to that episode. But to paraphrase what he was saying, he said that the idea of bombing, which is a word that we usually reserve to talk about comedy, isn't possible in the US because it doesn't match the expectations for poetry readings over there. What he says at the end of Uh, his introduction is it's not that you can't bomb at a poetry reading because there's a net it's that you're not even off the ground and that really really got me thinking about okay have I massively overstated things by using the word bomb is that actually an experience that poets have here in Australia are readings different here I don't think they are. I don't think things are massively different in Australia than in the US and I'm, I'm lucky enough to have gone to readings in both countries and I think here in Australia and very much in everything I say here let's stipulate I'm speaking from a very limited personal experience and not claiming to represent anything beyond a tiny corner of Melbourne But I think we don't expect laughter or tears or um, really anything in particular from a poetry reading. In fact, there's a chance that we might even brace to be a bit bored sometimes. We might be there mostly because we want to support the person who is reading or because we like their work maybe or maybe because we want to see someone else who we know is going to be there and the reading is kind of a um, a side issue from what we're actually doing uh, on that particular night. So, yeah, the expectations, I think, are, are pretty sedate when we go to a poetry reading a lot of the time. And I thought about that a lot when I ran my own reading here in Melbourne for a couple of years. I wondered, you know, are people here because they want to be here? Because they want to hear the poetry? Are they here because they want to support the poet? Or are they here out of obligation? You know, that was my worst case scenario. 
that I was setting up an event that people would feel like they had to come to. You know, I think one of the things that you come up against as a producer of poetry events is a lack of control. You don't really know what your poets are going to bring necessarily. You can attempt to program in a way that has contrast and interest, diversity of performers, but you don't know if someone is necessarily going to bring their A-game or if their A-game is what you want it to be. But to get back to this use of the word bomb, for myself when I use that word, I was thinking of a few specific experiences and I think the best way for me to talk about this is to focus on my own experience and my own expectations. I think when I started trying to get better at performing my poetry, I kind of did think about it in the same way that a comedian might. I almost wanted to put myself through a couple of bad experiences so that I could get better from that sort of, you know, walking through the fire. And I don't think that everybody approaches it like that, but that was my, I guess, on reflection, relatively punitive approach. And when I use that word to describe my own experience that I I think I share with Maxine, although I think her experience of bombing and mine are probably worlds apart in some ways, I was thinking of a specific time. I was thinking about the time that I went up to read at the Sappho Reading in Sydney, which is run by Toby Fitch. And I had this poem that I thought was fantastic. And I'd written it specifically for the reading. The idea, if I'm remembering correctly, was it was Ern Malley's 99th birthday. Ern Malley being Australia's favorite non-existent poet, completely made up poet, part of a hoax, but we, we celebrate Ern, we love him, and this was going to be his big birthday party, big open mic, and I was there with my poem that I had written. I haven't had the guts to open it and look at it for the purposes of this episode. It's way too cringy for me, but what I remember was that it was trying to do like six different things at once. It was some kind of dramatic monologue, like I had some kind of character voice going on in there. Uh, I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very smart. I know that it involved the TV presenter Richard Wilkins, and I have no idea why I thought that was a good idea. But anyway, I got up and did this poem, and the response I got was, as I said in the episode with, with Maxine, watery applause just like kind of a, you know, throat clearing and some light clapping. And I sat back down and the next poem happened. And I had come to this reading with such high expectations of how that was going to go. <laughs> you know, I'm there from Melbourne. I'm out of town. Like I'm, I want to wow everybody. I really want to impress everyone. And it just didn't do anything. It did not do anything. And I was so mortified that that had happened that I decided that a good idea would be to go up to Toby afterwards and sort of, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I think I kind of apologized or tried to explain like what I was trying to do. 
and a very kind friend of Toby's who was there sort of looked at me and was like, oh, no, it's okay. I got it. I laughed. So, yeah, uh, just sort of slunk away from that experience. It was not an experience I wanted to have twice. And as Maxine kind of brought up last week, I knew then that if I cared about what the audience did and what they thought and how they responded, I needed to find a way to communicate these ideas in a way that would connect. And as I was sort of trying to learn how to do this through trial and error, I was drawing a lot on my experiences in the US. And this is why Matthew's description of poetry readings over there kind of um, it surprised me because I learned what it could be to deliver poems, to perform poems when I was over there, specifically when I was in New York. And maybe these are experiences that are very specific to being in New York. I don't know. I suspect not. But that is where I saw, for example, Terence Hayes read. And I also got to go to uh, a festival called the Dodge Poetry Festival which had a whole bunch of you know super famous people reading there that particular year this is 2016 and i got to see claudia rankin read she was reading from a book called she didn't actually read her own work she read from um, mark nowak's book shut up shut down and that was really really significant to me to hear her speak about that I uh, got to see Billy Collins. Um, that was really interesting. Billy Collins was posed the question, I don't have anything interesting in my life. I don't have any trauma. Nothing bad has happened to me. What can I write about? And I think Billy's answer was something on the lines of like, just write about your life. It's fine. There's something to say in there. Just, just keep trying. The poet who really changed things for me was, in fact, a, a spoken word poet or, or a performance poet, I guess. And I really hesitate to use those words to describe her because I feel that they're probably a bit reductive. I, I think they're really reductive, actually. Um, this poet was uh, a woman called Mahogany L. Brown, who I, I later found out was you know super well known in the spoken word and slam scene and was a, a creative producer herself and i really had never seen anyone deliver a poem in the way that she did and she is the poet who i think of when i am practicing my own work for performance and when i am up there trying to communicate an idea i'm i'm thinking about mahogany l brown and i'm thinking about the way that she held our attention. This particular reading was in a church and it was, it was spellbinding. You know, whatever you think of, of that style of poetry and, and whether you, you love the idea of, of something being classified as spoken word or not, um, it was undeniable. So I thought about that a lot when I was trying to get better at the Dodge Poetry Festival as well, I don't know how related this is, but it sort of speaks to this idea of, of what a poem can and should do in performance. There was a panel with three or four poets, and one of them was Lee Young Lee. And he spoke in answer to a question, 
can't remember what the question was, but he spoke for an extended period, coming across as slightly crazed as he went on, um, comparing the reading and performance of poetry to the performance of hip-hop and drawing a comparison between his own work as a poet and what someone like RZA does, RZA of the Wu-Tang Clan. (laughs) Um, And my memory of what Lee Young Lee was saying was, what I do is braver and more of a high wire act because I don't have any music to lean on. And as I say, this this whole monologue was it was kind of coming off a bit unhinged towards the end and he kind of kept going and going and talking about RZA and we're all just getting more and more confused. And then he finished and the next poet to speak kind of quietly took the microphone and just said, I fuck with RZA. <laughs> which is something I think about a lot. And, uh, you know, that's sort of stuck in my mind. Like, is it braver to perform a poem without music to lean on? Is that even a useful comparison? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fond memory. It was just such a funny moment. All this time, I was also listening to the podcast, The Poetry Gods, which I mention often on here because I do think, even though it's defunct, It was one of the best things that was being made on the internet at the time. Uh, It was, you know, it was just so fun. I love any podcast where like the the theme is, is very far removed from what's actually being talked about. It's basically just three friends chatting and occasionally they talked about poetry. But um, one of the episodes, they interviewed Ocean Vong, who also comes up on Slee Ricketts at one point. And one of the things that Ocean said in that interview, which has stuck with me forever, and I know that had an impact on other poets who were listening at the time too, Ocean said, memorize your shit. And because at the time I was having such a difficult experience trying to read at all, but a big part of that difficulty was, you know, the paper in front of me was shaking and a source of stress because like do I have the paper where is it which pocket is it in how do I get it out how do I unfold it it's just like fuck yeah memorizing would help because I wouldn't have to worry about any of that so that phrase kind of planted the seed and when I got home I was already in correspondence with the beautiful Sydney poet Louise Carter who's now dear friend and Lou did a reading again back at Sappho Um, My memory is that this is the the first time I saw her do this at Sappho. She just did a 10-minute set just straight from memory. And hopefully this is obvious, but in the spoken word performance poetry world, that's not significant. You know, it's, um, it's very much expected. It's what you have to do. You have to memorize your shit. But if you're a page poet to use a very tired and, again, quite reductive term, you don't. You have a page. You read from the page. And I think that is part of what contributes to this problem that Matthew was talking about. It's purely sometimes because you're looking down rather than out. Lou was looking out. She was making eye contact. She sounded like how I wanted to sound. 
And so that was really when I decided I have to memorize. I have to be able to see people when I'm performing. Just for me, I need to know if you are laughing, yawning, looking away, looking bored, looking engaged. I need to know because that means that I can, I can modify what I'm doing because I want to stay connected to the audience. And once I'd done it once, I was completely convinced that this is, this is what I had to do. So for me, all of that is kind of what I was, uh, I guess, trying to summarize in describing the experience of bombing. And I think if I were to translate it into um, or unpack it slightly, I would just rephrase that as not meeting my own expectations of myself. So those were my thoughts. And again, do go check out Slee Ricketts. It's a really, really wonderful time. It looks likely that I might be guesting on there in a few weeks, which is super exciting. But in the meantime, I get to share with you today uh, my interview with Lockie Little from, again, back um, before Poetry Month. And I think Lockie is someone who just, this whole conversation probably would just sound almost nonsensical. I think in the world where Lockie creates, performs, works, this idea of, of performing um, without getting off the ground wouldn't really resonate because I think in Lockie's world there is success, there is failure. I think he is working in, in quite a different poetry community to my own and maybe you know something that struck me when I was speaking with him was just how far away that community felt um, sometimes Melbourne can feel really disconnected even from Sydney uh, let alone from what's happening in a world like Lockie's up on the Gold Coast so he's a musician he's a creative producer and he's a poet and he's described as a performance or a spoken word poet. And look, I don't always approach spoken word with the best attitude. I, I need to sort of set that out here. But the poem that Lockie reads at the end of this episode, I, every time I listen back to it, it just stops me in my tracks. I've, I've gotten chills listening to it. Um, I'm really, really grateful that I got the opportunity to be connected with him for this interview and just to learn a tiny little bit about, again, this, this world of poetry that I, I feel like I knew nothing about. Lockie is a self-described mischief maker. He has a very healthy disrespect for the white canon. <laughs> and I'll just leave the last uh, word of this introduction to him. This is a quote from his website. While you're here, I'd like to show you to my basement where I have crucified Walt Whitman, shrunk Jack Kerouac's skull and fed it to Charles Bukowski, who is copying a maths exam being written by Henry Miller, who is praying on his knees before an altar devoted to Britney Spears, the divine savior of all aspiring poets. Amen to that. My name is Lucky Little. I'm a Jabba Jabba man. Um, my mob is from Broome. Um, I work, yeah, as a poet, as a musician, but also as a creative producer for Digi Youth Arts. 
The Red Room team reminded me when we were put in touch that Lockie, spelled L-O-K-I, is the Norse Norse trickster god. It's the Norse god of mischief, Loki. Yeah. Um, Yes, very, uh, also in Avengers, obviously, but um, that predates, um, yeah, Loki predates. He was kind of like, yeah, kind of the uh, in-betweener, not quite good, not quite evil god would always just kind of rock up to mess with people and it's pivotal in like Ragnarok and kind of bringing about the end of the world, but then not so much as well. And then by the end of it, he was punished by the gods by being like tied up in some cave with like a, a snake hanging above his head, dropping venom into his eyes, which apparently caused excruciating pain that caused earthquakes throughout the land. And his wife, who loved him, stuck around and would like hold a cup over to like catch the venom. But then every time she had to pour it out, it would obviously get him again. But I think he got loose in the end and got up some more mischief. But my parents called me Loki because um, my... Uh, my parents had gone and seen the mask. The mask is the mask of Loki. That's why he turns into a trickster god. And then they came out. I did not know that. Okay. The mask mythology has just come into 3D for me. That's awesome. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. And so on your website, you refer to your poems as written mischief. So you've obviously got this mischievous side to you. I wonder in the circles of poets that you move in and the writers and the other creators that you work with, do you ever get any pushback for not being serious enough, quote unquote, around your work? Um, not really. I think um, because when I really, I've been writing for years and years, but when I started stepping into doing poetry, I was running um, the two open mics on the Gold Coast for like two and a half years one of which was alternative poetry at the Dust Temple and the other one that was polypoetry. And because I was kind of like MC, you get to have the, um, I guess, the luxury of kind of being the, the access point for the energy in a room. And so because you're an MC, you kind of have to be loud and ridiculous to make people more comfortable, you know, because I, I don't feel too bad about embarrassing myself with terrible, loud bullshit. Um, and in a way that would make, you know, if there's like a first poet there who's really nervous to perform and I just get up there and like intentionally do some trash poem and get the audience to boo at me, then they can get up and it, it makes them feel a little bit better. So like that, I think that playfulness has always been appreciated in that kind of environment because, um, yeah, the spoken word environment is very different to the written word environment because it's, it's performative. Um, you know, you can have great... Um, serious poems that really hit to the heart, but you got to be able to like perform and engage people. So people are never really upset. I think it's like also about having a balance of, um, you know, sincerity and, and mischievousness. It's good to be able to make people laugh. It's good to be able to make people feel something. I think in some of my works, I'll put out like a funny one to get people engaged and then like hit them in the stomach with something, you know, serious or using satire. You can say very serious things in very hilarious ways which I find to be disarming in the most fun way of getting a method across. So I've never had too much trouble with it. Although I did once, yeah. I had, um, when I won the uh, the Ninbin Poetry Cup in, I think it was 2019, I'd done this um, three-part poem, which was like, there was like Mojo, um, Hybrid Breed and Elder. And Mojo was like this kind of like reverend preacher screaming about, um, 
you know, we live in a time where kind of, you know, the formula of kill the ego and get enlightened is really the kind of fundamental code. A lot of people are, you know, neurotically chasing after. I've seen it just like, you know, working in poetry circles, you see a lot of, you know, the, the kind of collective thoughts or pseudoscience of, of the time because you hear it repeated in poems every month by multiplied by a hundred. And so I was kind of made this poem, which was all about just doing the opposite and falling in love with the ego and embracing it in the most audacious peacock David Bowie kind of style. You can imagine in order to, you know, I've said people, and that was very loud. And then I go from that and like have their attention and drop into, you know, a poem called Elder, which is about indigeneity and the importance of connection to land and reconnection after stolen generations, which is like a dramatic, almost gaslighting kind of shift in, uh, in, in theme, which worked. But then it came out, someone, some woman, I think had maybe uh, watched the first poem and then I stuck around for the rest and found out that I'd won and put an article in like the Ninbin paper, like, you know, how can we have, you know, this loud, obnoxious, shrieking man win the poetry cup. The last thing we need is another, I need is another white man screaming at me, you know, but if she'd like, you know, stuck around, she would have found out that I was an indigenous man and that it was just kind of like the heralding firework to something that hopefully struck more resonance. But I just found that really funny. I think I showed it to like David Stavanger from, from, Red Room and everything, and he found it really hilarious as well. It was, it was good. That's my only experience of, you know, whiplash. It's fantastic. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> How long have you been writing and performing poetry for? I've really been writing poetry since I was um, 15 or 16. Um, and then I started performing poetry. I probably performed my first ever poem in like 2017 or 18. Josh used to run the Poetry in the Gold Coast and I did one or two poems there. And then um, basically I'd only done a few and then he was leaving the Gold Coast and asked if I wanted to take it over. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I can try and do this. And I did it with this lovely um, friend uh, named Louise, who was an excellent poet, wrote prolifically. And I think uh, to welcome me in, because we were co-hosting for a while, welcomed me into hosting alternator poetry and let me do a feature slot. And it was just at the beginning of my poetry and I did some like audaciously indulgent 15 minute long poem, which I'd laugh. It's, it's funny to look back at and be like, God, I really subjugated the whole audience to that experience. And, um, and then I guess I started performing through doing that because as MC, it would always be good to like warm it up, started off, set the bar with a poem, which really got me into the practice. It really accelerated and L-shaped my writing uh, practice because I had to feel like I was presenting something new and setting the bar every month as the, as the MC to keep the tone. And then just from doing that um, all the time, I started performing all the time and then did Nidbin and then started getting spoken word slots here and there and everywhere. So you're obviously a really passionate and engaged spoken word artist, but in researching this episode, I came across your project, Forbidden Vinyl, which is a written project on your website, and I really want to encourage listeners to go and check it out. Um, can you talk to me about how that came together? Yeah, I think that was, when was that? I think that was after, like, a um, you know, very big year of, you know, performing and working and also for my band self. We've been doing a lot of stuff as well. And I think it was cool coming out of, you know, I think I was in a time where after doing a lot of spoken word and having to do it routinely, um, it can, you know, even though it is obviously performative, it can also start to feel performative, you know, that you have to like 
summon you know the the performer archetype in order to get something across and i just felt like returning to some of the purity of written word and i think it was um it was i think i wanted to you know come at that whole series i just kind of like sit and write a poem and try to not necessarily have like a linear narrative but try to like sit there and maybe work on like a 10 line poem for like half an hour and like write one or two words and then like sit there and be like links in the brain and go all right that's the next thing that should be there and just let like five or ten minutes pass until another phrase that just seems completely weird and contrasted to the last phrase can like jot in so it was a lot more of like a slow process i just wanted to you know put these and i would like to put it out at some point i wanted to put a bunch of just bite-sized poems you know that are these kind of like little um what do you call the what are the the koans like koans kind of thing these little um, logic breaking um, things, but they were also, they all really carried a mood and an aesthetic, which was, you know, I really felt at the time. And so I was really, I was pretty stoked when it came out a collection of just, it'd almost be good to just put out a little book with just like 10 poems that someone can just like flip through in a second and get a bite from. So yeah, it's been a while since I, I wrote that, but I still would really like to do something with it. I haven't really had the chance to put out any um, written word as of yet. Um, and I think the style of writing written word is so different to, you know, writing spoken word. Like, to be honest, I'd get really bored if I had to read any of my own spoken word poems because they're so long, you know, and it's hard to follow that tangent without it being performed. Whereas, you know, some of my big influences, like, you know, Leonard Cohen and Neruda, Neruda, yeah, um, who just write these little real potent poems that can really ripple through you. So, so I tried to do in Forbidden Vinyl. Um, and if anyone wants to read it, you can give it a shot. I think it's quite nice. Yeah, I really hope that it that it finds its way into the world. Um, obviously, there on your website if people want to read it. But I guess that's the thing about speaking to you is that you're on the Gold Coast. I'm in Melbourne. I don't tend to get to Queensland nearly as often as I would want to. And so you probably have a world of artists and creators around you that know your work really well and they're familiar with you. But because it's only happening on the stage yeah. in those three minutes, I, I I just wasn't aware of your work. And, yeah, so I hope that something like Forbidden Vinyl Me gets too. I should really print it out. I've got to, I've got to get to that. I think I, was, I had like a, I think I put it into some kind of Queensland Library Award to see if I could get, you know, funding to put it out or whatever. But I didn't win that one. So... So who have been the people in your life over these years that you've been performing and writing, starting to write, who've supported your work as a poet and as a performer? Um, poetry, definitely all credit would have to go to Isla and John from the Dust Temple, the owners of the Dust Temple there, who just always had time for me being the MC and obviously took over organising Alternator, but they've been running Alternator there for like eight years, probably like nine now. Um, and so it's so kind of like the longest running poetry night on the Gold Coast, if not Queensland, uh, there might be some longer ones. Um, so they were always just endlessly supportive and obviously the ones who generated the community um, at Alternator in the space and everything. And then, and then over those years of performing the poetry um, and hosting the MC, there is definitely like a, a knit family of poets that started coming together and also coming out of the woodwork, you know, so the Gold Coast has like a really beautiful circle of, of people and poets. Um, Vincent Stead, 
he's a big legend to big part in the Ninbin um, circles, but would also like, you know, he's the kind of guy who, he is a kind of like a, a traveling poet who'd travel up and down the coast and literally go to every spoken word that was on, you know, in a week. Um, and then he'd be there before I am as the MC and like had the, the chairs already set up for me. And I'd be like, nice. He's also one of the best poets out there. Um, and now I've stopped hosting both of those um, and have handed um, Alternator over to my friend Liam Bowie, um, who's now continuing it on and hosting another one as well. So he was always a big support during the time. Obviously, my partner creation was a big support for, for my poetry in general, but also for the events because I didn't have a license at the time. And she'd be the one driving there. So couldn't have even got there. None of it would have happened without her help there. Um, but yeah, lots of people, obviously the team from Digi Youth Arts give me a lot of opportunities and, um, but yeah, I guess close friends and, and my partner have always supported the poetry very much. It sounds like you're, you're writing and working very much in a community rather than the image of the poet locked away in the garret. Yeah. 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 I've asked pretty much every interviewee I've spoken with so far this same question, and I'm really interested to ask you, what are some of the things that you feel we could be talking about in terms of poetry in this country that mm. we don't address? What are some of the absences and the things mm. we leave out when we talk about poetry here? I think, um, I don't know, there's lots, of, there's lots of huge conversations. I mean, Obviously, it'd be cool to see way more inclusion of First Nations poets and, and speakers across the board in, you know, journals and magazines being published in positions and competitions and just feature slots at any festivals that maintain spoken word. Because I guess poetry is such a, um, poetry is such, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a tool in the bag of the kind of revolutionist kind of culture. Um, and it can sometimes feel, you know, to people in the poetry circles that they're on the front line of kind of pushing the edge with a kind of new format. But obviously poetry is really old, but so is storytelling on these lands. I mean, the, the art of storytelling um, amongst Indigenous people, which is, you know, what poetry is, um, has been the kind of fibre of Indigenous culture since, since forever. Um, so that's why I think that the craft is so, you know, old and, and powerful when you hear the words in poetry or books or writings of Indigenous people because it's something um, that we've been doing and that we've been great at for, for a very long time. So I think um, allowing for more spaces to um, have that and also, you know, um, autonomy for, you know, Indigenous writers to be maybe being supported by, you know, funding bodies to be putting on their own events or putting out their own magazines or journals or all these kind of things. I think there is a infinity of obviously important issues, uh, but also incredible beauty, and depth and power that can come from um, Indigenous poets. But obviously it needs to be heard more and that's all in all more about, you know, the support, elevation and listening to the overall Indigenous voice. Is there anything that I haven't led you to that's been on your mind recently poetry-wise? Well, I've got a... Um, I got my first ever published piece recently. Um, I got commissioned to put some Griffith Review, which was really cool, which is like uh, the Griffith Review. I think they do like it's out of the Griffith Uni. They do like a quarterly, um, yeah, journal um, with all kinds of, 
you know, it was cool reading it back because it's got like, it was about states of mind. And so it's got all these like essays from like the, you know, head of psychology in Australia and doctors on the front line of psychedelic research and all this wild, really super awesome and intelligent stuff. And then it just like my story sl- thrown in there amidst them, but it was, uh, it was really cool. The, the story is called snake of light, which is, um, it's like a 4,000 word short story. But like Snake of Light is kind of like a, a story or a theme that I've been, you know, playing with for probably like four years. It kind of started as an ongoing story that I would just sit and write whenever I was down at the cafe in the morning and it just like, you know, bent and took on. I didn't really want to do anything with it. It was just cathartic. And then it became the background like narrative for um, my band Selves, first EP Snake of Light under the same name where all the songs were kind of pulled from elements of the story. Um, and then, yeah, I got this commission and I hadn't worked on it in a few years and had grown a lot as a writer. So that I felt like I was able to condense and tell that story in a way more, you know, vivid, lucid and, and concise way. So I was really proud of that. Uh, I think that can be found on the Griffith review website or, or the book is out. So that's fun. I'm hoping to develop that into more of a story as well. Yeah, it's. I saw it up there, and it's also got you reading the piece as well. I believe. Yeah, it's an audiobook. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Would you like to read us a poem to take us out? I could. Yeah, I was gonna do. Um, I was gonna do my poem Elder, which is a bit more. Um, yeah, I guess tender than this one, but I think this one. Thinking about like um, how you know, when you asked what, what we should be talking about more in poetry. Um, I, this was a, a poem that is an excerpt from um, a short story, which will also be in the next Griffith Review, which is pretty nice. Um, and it's about this kind of, there's a young Indigenous man, he's walking through the, the valley in, um, in Brisbane, in the city, uh, like late at night, and he's, he's kind of, you don't know where he's from or, you know, <clears throat> anything. He's just walking through the streets and thinking his thoughts. But he comes up to a... Um, comes up to like past this whiskey bar and, and looks in and uh, sees that it's a, it's, a, it's a spoken word poetry night or, or a slam or, or whatever. But from his perspective, he looks in and he can see that it's just like, you know, extremely um, all white. And um, he begins to have his own internal thoughts. And, and it's obviously being able to draw on my experience as being a host and the, the recurring themes or the regurgitated themes or interests of the... Um, you know, poetry culture is kind of like a investigation into that. Um, also kind of like an interrogation of, you know, our ideals, even especially not just in older generations, but you have to be able to interrogate the ideals of your peers, you know, younger generations as in like, you know, people can get infatuated with Jack Kerouac and, uh, you know, Neil Cassidy and all these people from across the lands, but still have no time to pay attention to the incredible stories um, we have here, you know, um, from indigenous culture. And so the poem's kind of about that. So I'll just go into it without um, going any much further. It's called There Are No Aboriginals in On The Road. There are no Aboriginals in On The Road. So where should I place my thumb? 
Would Kerouac care with his lucid eyes about what stars were broken in our ancient skies? Are our stories of secret time worthy of your archives? Will our elders be leather-bound, wrapped and stacked beside the Odyssey and Iliad, Hemingway and Upishnads, Nietzsche, Tolstoy, Husky, Shakespeare and the million arms of Herman Hesse? Do we not have a library full of meaning worth walking through and reading? Our languages are ageless, whereas your words are still just teething. What you are all seeking, we have always been speaking, but there is no use in pleading to ears hard of hearing. You've all got your big dreams of artistry, of screaming crowds and publishing, a tower stacked of burning books, a lake of ink and a diamond brook. You scream for a revolution in a paradise that you took. If you want a revolution, climb inside of our song, for we are the ones who have been here all along. We are the ones through which the rainbow serpent slithers while the city shimmers and shivers. And if you want to shed the cement skin of this psychospheric system, you'll have to do it with us. But there are no aboriginals in your acid revelations in Jimi Hendrix songs. There are no aboriginals in Jim Morrison's dreams or the thoughts of Sigmund Freud. Perhaps beside the music festival of everlasting archetypes, we just seem relatively uninteresting which is why we have to fight our way into your books, because it's the only way our culture gets a second look. So let us dance while we skin your romantics on the fire. Say a prayer for your angels as we enter into revelry around your literary pie.